Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network. The only place with a show for every team in LA and much more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm your host, Nara Wang, and my guest for episode 32 is one of the greatest players in USC women's water polo history. In 1999, Bernice Orwig was a first-team All-American and National Player of the Year, leading the Women of Troy to its first national championship in just the fifth season of the program's history and taking home the first Peter J. Catino Award as the best player in women's college water polo. She would then win a silver medal at the 2000 Summer Olympic Games as the goalie for Team USA in the first Olympics to feature women's water polo. And, full disclosure, she ends up marrying a guy, Michael O'Connor, that I've known since we were both freshmen living on the first floor of Trojan Hall. If you're keeping track, yes, that is a lot of firsts. Bernie, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great intro. Thanks. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, you can subscribe and rate it wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, or more. And you can also find it right at the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcasts. For me, you can find and follow me on Twitter if you want to catch up with me about USC sports or any other sports. At Nara Wang Sports, N A R A W E N G Sports. And Bernie, you're the queen of social media, I'm sure, right? Anything you want to throw out there for the fans listening? There's a few Twitter tweets that go around. Orwig underscore O'Connor sometimes can be located. All right, a little tease for the audience there. The Everything USC podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. July is underway, and it's a great month for sports, which means it's a great month for sports betting, and Bet Online is where you can find it. From the NBA Finals to baseball's marquee matchups, including prop bets and futures, Bet Online has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next tip-off or pitch, head on over to Bet Online and start playing today. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. With all due respect and apologies to Cindy Clark and Christina McCall, my guest on this episode of the Everything USC podcast Bernice O'Connor, or Bernice Orwig as she was known by her maiden name during her time as a Trojan, was the first superstar of the women's water polo program. During her three years as the goalkeeper for the women of Troy, the team progressed from a 15-20 record 0-6 in Mountain Pacific Sports Federation play in 1997 to 22-16 the next season, and finally setting the still school record of 30 wins against just two losses in winning the national title in 1999. Without Bernice the Furnace leading the way, USC doesn't go from a Division II program in 1995, the program's first year of existence, to D1 national champions just four years later. Without that foundation that she established, who knows if future Trojan superstars like 
Mariah Van Norman, Lauren Wenger, Cammie Craig, Amanda Longan, and so many others would have even ended up at SC. But your path just to become a Trojan wasn't a traditional one, was it, Bernie? No, it wasn't. Back in 94, when I graduated from high school, women's water polo wasn't very big. I think there's only a handful of programs of universities that had women's water polo as a true sport. So I ended up going to junior college for two and a half years. Well, two years, technically, I kind of took the fall off, which ended up working in my favor to allow me to have eligibility to play three full seasons after transferring from JC. When I was at the JC, actually, I played one season on the men's water polo team, and I even made it to become a all-conference player on the men's conference for junior colleges. I mean, that's just how different it was back then. There just wasn't a lot of women's water polo being played at the younger level to be a pipeline into college, right? Correct. Yeah. For high school, we called ourselves a co-ed team because we had probably the most girls that played high school with the boys. But pretty much every other school that we played against, they maybe only had one or no girls playing water polo. So we're really lucky at Savannah High School, where I went to school, that our coach, Patty Smith, she was so dedicated and open to having girls play on the boys team. So we were pretty much one of the only co-ed teams in our district. And so to play on the boys team at junior college, at Cypress College, it was kind of a no-brainer. But I only played one season there to make sure that I had more eligibility once I transferred. I transferred to USC in January of 97. But before that, Jovan saw me during a club tournament down in San Diego. And one of my club teammates played at USC and was like, Jovan, you have to watch this goalie. She's really good. And so he came up to me after the game. He's like, Bernice, I would like to offer you a scholarship. I'll call you on Monday. And so pretty much my whole world changed. I wasn't even sure if I was going to transfer to a four-year from junior college. And then all of a sudden, this whole world of opportunity opened up. So it's not like you were some hotshot recruit that everyone was in on. We kind of just stumbled upon you. Yeah. I and mean, thankfully, if it wasn't for Kathy Rao, I don't know if I would have even been noticed by Yovan at USC. And so she pointed him in my direction. And thankfully, he saw something that I was able to get, be able to add to his program. And it all worked out. That's amazing. And of course, you come in to school in January of 97, you're playing right away, and you end up being a three-time All-American, second team in 97 and 98, first team in 99. You're the team MVP all three years. Like I mentioned, you end up winning the Peter J. Catino Award, which is basically water polo's version of the Heisman Trophy in football that was started up in 1999. So you're the first winner of that on the women's side. And you hold the school record for most saves in a single season with 323 still. You're also second on that list with 276. And for good measure, in your last season, you were fifth with 239. And the only reason the saves went down is because the team defense was better, basically, by the time you were in your last season there at SC. But your career saves number in three years, 838, is still the third most in SC history behind just... Laura Bologna's 895 and Amanda Longan's 840, and they both played four seasons. So thinking about the progression of the team from when you came in in 97 to 99, leaving as a national champion, what were the biggest reasons for the improvement that happened? Well, I really think that 
especially within the 97 through 99 time period when I was there, the athletes, of course, being led by Jovan, we set a precedent on how we we're going to approach practices. Of course, there was focus, but camaraderie at the same time. And everyone had the same goal. And I know a lot of teams say that, oh, they have the same goal. But it's also inside the locker room, we had the same goal that we were going to get along. And so it wasn't just in the water we got along, it was in the locker room away from the pool. It was so important to be able to have that that bond and that special friendships with each person. I mean, might not have been best friends with everyone. However, we each respected each person. And so I think that ended up being passed on to each class and building upon that, it brought forth just community and togetherness. And then also to be able to have that mindset to come in and work hard at the pool every day. And Jovan obviously was not an easy coach. And so to have the ability to take care of each other outside the pool was really important. A funny story or just an anecdote about that is the fact that your co-captain in 98 and 99, Kelly Clark, is now your sister-in-law. Yeah. Because she's married to Mike O'Connor's brother, Chris, who was a year behind Mike and I in school in the same year of my brother. They were actually on the same floor as freshmen. So that was kind of, you know, a thing that bonded Mike and I is that we were together as freshmen in the same dorm. And then my brother and his brother were together the next year as freshmen in the same dorm. So I did not know that part of it. And that's truly bonded experience. Yeah. So just, again, the crazy connections that you can make. And like you mentioned with Kelly Clark, a teammate, a friend, and now a sister-in-law. So yeah, very close there. And talking about that magical 1999 season, heading into the season, did you or the team think that a national championship was possible? We, of course, knew it was on the horizon. We had a really good freshman recruiting class coming in with Aniko Pele and Nina Banks and Sandra. We really made sure to make them feel welcomed. I, I can't imagine leaving your home country to go to another country and then go to school. Thankfully, we all played water polo, so we had that as a bonding factor. It was really about making sure that they felt welcomed, and they immediately made a huge impact for us in the water. And so after our first couple of games, we realized, hey, this is something we can achieve. And so goals of, okay, let's make it to the semifinals. Now all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're going to make it to the finals. Let's shift that goal. Let's aim bigger. In that season, you went 30-2. and two. Those two losses were both against the same team. Cal, 6-5 yep. in February at home for your only MPSF regular season loss. And then they got USC again 3-2 in the MPSF tournament final. And you had won the first meeting against them 4-3 in the UC San Diego tournament earlier in the season. And so obviously all the games were one-goal differences, tight games. Were you expecting to see Cal again in that national championship tournament? And was there any apprehension that maybe the Golden Bears had your number? I don't remember too much about the Golden Bear team that year. However, two athletes, Heather Petrie and Colette Klinkowski, those were the girls that scored all the goals. And I'm like, oh man, Colette has my number. Pretty much anything she put against me was going in. And so when Stanford matched up with Cal in that semifinal, I was rooting for Stanford. <laughs> Because I was I was nervous about having to face Cal again. And thankfully, Stanford did win. So we were facing someone else. 
But then Stanford gave you guys a huge run for your money in that national championship final. Five overtimes to take out the Cardinal women seven to six. How epic was that match to win the title? Oh, longest game ever. And of course, in any of the huddles that we're coming back to, Yovan kept reminding us, this is why we trained. This is why he pushed us to make sure we were ready for any situation the game would bring to us. And of course, we were feeling tired and exhausted, but at the same time that we knew we had put ourselves in that position before and we could be successful. But that game was crazy. I mean, their goalie, Heather Crary, scored a full shot goal against me. I was out of position to try to take away a counterattack. So I was moved out. She saw it, took advantage of it. I tipped it, thought I was tipping it over, and ended up going in. I was like, oh, my goodness. One thing, uh, one of my best friends from high school, she was playing at San Jose State. She was in the stands, and she told me something later. I have no recollection of it myself, but one point in the game, Stanford scored. It was on a power play. And one of my defenders, she missed her shot blocking responsibility and she sank underwater. And my friend told me, she's like, you grabbed her by the back of her cap, whispered something in her ear and pushed her to the line. And she left that situation full of confidence. She's like, what did you say? I'm like, I have no idea. But I thought that was really cool to have that outside perspective of where yeah, something bad just happened, but I must have just reminded her about the focus. That's just one shot, one goal, and now to move forward. Hey, that's being a captain, right? That's showing the leadership that you had as the captain of the team. And so for people who maybe don't know the sport of water polo that well, I mean, you are treading water or swimming in the pool during the entire game. Just kind of explain to people what goes into that. So for skill-wise, tactic-wise, the game flows a lot like hockey, ice hockey, or even a little bit like soccer in this sense of there's offense, defense, there can be offsides. But we are swimming, wrestling, passing the ball, shooting the ball, constantly making small adjustments in the water if you're a field player. And the goal, goalies pretty much only play half the game, which is true of any goal sport. The goalies will only play half the game, but in that half of the game, it's 100% adrenaline the entire time when we're focused on the ball and making a block. But yeah, the pool is at usually minimum of two meters, so just over six feet. So yeah, there's no jumping off the bottom. There's no, hey, I need to take a breather, grabbing the ball. <laughs> so it's nonstop the whole time. One of the most physical sports out there. And anytime if you happen to catch a water polo match on TV and they have an underwater camera, the brutality that is going on underneath the water is amazing to see. So when it was over, be honest with me here, Bernie, was it more relief or elation that you were feeling after winning that championship? Oh, elation. That's easy. It was elation. And just the excitement and emotion. One thing one of my coaches always told us is that at the end of the season, you're going to be crying and it's either going to be tears of joy or tears of happiness. And there's just tears of joy, just being so proud of the journey and the hard work that was put into it. And a name you've brought up a few times already, the head coach of the team, Jovan Vavic. He's a legend in the sport of water polo. He won 16 national titles as head coach for USC, 10 on the men's side, six on the women's side. Basically, the John Wooden of water polo, if you want to make a comparison. He had six straight 
men's titles from 2008 to 2013, a 15-time National Coach of the Year award winner. But obviously, this is kind of maybe the elephant in the room that we have to bring up, and he was caught up in the FBI's Operation Varsity Blues investigation into college admissions bribery in March of 2019 and was actually arrested in Hawaii while the women's team was there, getting set to play the University of Hawaii a few days later. He's been accused of taking a quarter million dollars for helping two students gain admission to USC as water polo recruits, even though they weren't really water polo players. So he was fired immediately after that arrest. Casey Moon, who was an associate head coach and still is an associate head coach for the team, was named the interim head coach for the rest of that 2019 season. Vavich has pled not guilty to all charges, and he's scheduled to go to trial in November. But first thing I want to ask you is, imagine yourself as a player on a road trip to Hawaii, and all of a sudden your coach is arrested and fired. I mean, what's going through your head in that situation? Yeah, it's just disbelief. Like So much confusion. I can't imagine being an athlete, being anywhere from 18 to 22 years old, and the leader of your program just being accused and such nasty things were even being said. I couldn't imagine just the disbelief and confusion that you would have as an athlete during that. And how surprised were you here that Jovan was caught up in that scandal? I'm really surprised because with the success that his program has, just a lot of questions end up entering your mind. So after it all goes down and it's clear that obviously he's not coming back to the program and he's built this program, both the men and the women, into this national powerhouse, this elite team, did you think the program could continue to maintain that elite status without the legendary coach that had built it up? Oh, for sure. Because that's one thing. When you're that successful, it's a, it becomes a machine, right? And yes, he's the head controller of that machine, but at the same time, though, it can still run when that head's taken away. And Casey stepped into the role and just really did so much with those girls about balancing their emotions and giving them the space to be able to be open with each other and share their feelings. And I think it ended up bringing them together more so as a program because you could go one of two ways, right? You can either come together or immediately fall apart. And I believe Casey and Pinta really brought that program together and gave the girls the confidence that they knew what they needed to do. And that team still managed to play well, made it all the way to the national championship final before falling there and being the runner-up on that 2019 season. And you've kind of touched on some of the things that you had to do under him already, but what do you think was the key thing that made him such a successful coach and able to develop so many good players over the years? He recognized not only talent, but also a person's desire. And a lot of times he rewarded you if you put in everything. If you completely believed in what he was doing and saying as a coach, and you showed him that you were putting all of your effort into it, he would reward you in terms of just praise and support. When I was going for the Olympics, he was completely supportive of me redshirting my senior year even if I wanted to go for that dream of making an Olympic team, which I I think sometimes some coaches could be when they're thinking that they're trying to build a program, they want to be selfish and have their best player for themselves. But he saw the bigger picture 
and not just with myself, but with other athletes as well. He knows what they're able to accomplish and he really can build them and push them when they need to be pushed, pull them aside, talk to them when they need a little pat on the back and getting them to perform at the time they need to perform. In the end, do you think he'll be remembered more for his accomplishments as a coach or for this scandal? Because, for example, like we bring up John Wooden, he's practically considered a saint, especially by UCLA fans. And many people don't know or choose to ignore that he knew that many of his players were receiving cars, clothes, and other improper benefits during his time as the head coach because of a booster named Sam Gilbert in obvious violation of NCAA rules and regulations. And really, the only thing he did was tell his players to not associate with Gilbert. But a lot of players during those championship years were taking gifts. And so how do you think he's going to be remembered in the end? I believe his legacy as a coach will be remembered. And we'll see what comes of the trial when it comes through. But he put so much of himself into was it 20 years? How many years was it at USC being the women's coach and the men's coach to not be remembered in that way? And just because of what's happened in recent years, you can't erase what the previous years of accomplishments had. And when you look back at your time playing at USC, what do you remember the most about it? Just the times with my teammates. I mean, I barely remember any plays. I don't remember certain situations, but I remember being at team dinners. I remember when we would travel, the stories that we were able to tell each other, how freshmen had to stay in dorms in Hawaii, where the seniors got to stay in different locations and where it was beautiful. And I got benched for eating butter because Yovan saw an opportunity to make an example of me because I was the leader of the team as my senior year. and. He's very strict about what your diet should be because he believes that whatever you put in your body is what comes out of your body. And so one of his rules is you don't eat butter at dinner or at meals. And we are at a restaurant. I saw a freshman. She had butter on her bread. I'm like, what are you doing? I took it off her plate and I put it on my plate. So she wouldn't eat it. Yovan walked by. He saw it on my plate. He's like, (laughs) Bernie, what are you doing? But you know the rules. Like, you can't play this afternoon. You're like, you're not starting. Maddie, you're starting. And so backup goalie started that game. But he also knew what he was doing. And he knew we were going to win that game, whether I was in the pool or not. He had confidence in the team. But at the same time, he was able to show just because I was the captain and I was the starting goalkeeper didn't mean I got to cut the rules. So he used that opportunity to show that everyone on the team is equal and no one's going to get special treatment. And so I sat the game. It was only supposed to be a quarter, but we were up by five or six goals at the end of the first quarter. So I didn't play the whole game. So then, of course, it got turned into she was benched the whole game for having butter on her dish. And <laughs> so and it ended up being passed down for years. I mean, you mentioned Mariah Van Norman. And I know on her recruiting trip, she told me that she's like, there was a story about someone was benched because of butter. I'm like, yeah, that was me. She's like, what? That really happened? I'm like, yeah, it did. So just those are the stories I remember more than any game, per se. So to be clear, your favorite memory isn't the one career goal you scored in 1997. No. (laughs) I didn't even know I did. (laughs) 
Yep, you're in the record books with one goal in your career. Sweet. Of course, this is the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Nara Wang. I am joined today by one of the legends of USC women's water polo, the first ever winner of the Peter J. Catino Award, Bernice O'Connor, or Bernice Orwig, as she was known back during her playing days. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, you can subscribe, rate it, download it on all your favorite podcast directories. You can also go to the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcasts. For me, I'm on Twitter. Find and follow me there, at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Bernie, I know you're the queen of social media. Get it out there. Orwig underscore O'Connor on Twitter. Hi, Trojan fans. This is Lindsay Gottlieb, head coach of the USC women's basketball team. And you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. Fight on. Now we got to talk about the 2021 USC women's water polo season. The team goes wire to wire as the number one ranked team in the nation, finishing 22 and one. Only loss was in the regular season finale at UCLA. And then they stormed through the postseason to win the seventh national title in women's water polo for USC, sixth NCAA title, and the 132nd team title overall for SC just a week after women's beach volleyball had defeated UCLA in a final. So they got their revenge against the Bruins in Westwood, no less, 18-9, an absolute drubbing in the national championship game. 14 of those 22 wins on the season were by at least four goals, outscoring opponents overall 292 to 166. And they did all this while missing three key players who were training for the Olympics with their respective national teams. Paige Hosschild for the U.S., Alejandra Osnar for Spain, and Tilly Kearns for Australia sat out for a second straight year from collegiate water polo. How much were you able to see of this team, and did you think they were as dominant as the numbers say they were? I unfortunately did not see anything in person. However, I did take advantage of their streaming opportunities, and they were strong. They were a strong team defensively, and they had their goalie, Parker. She really was the backbone of that defense, helping make sure that she got her shot blockers where she wanted them. And then their counterattack was fierce always attacking the goal straight away, looking for the cross pass and be able to get the goalie out of position. It was a lot of fun to watch them play. On power players, they were just moving the ball really clean. One thing in water polo, you don't want the ball in the water. Anytime the ball is on the water, you're not a threat. And so teams are constantly focusing on keeping that ball dry and working on their passes. And they really had that. You could tell that that was a focal point back during the pandemic days of when you couldn't do anything with anyone else and their ball handling skills i'm sure was a focus on their training and so that hard work during that postseason or preseason i guess the extended preseason really paid off for them now one thing that hasn't happened for the usc women is winning back-to-back national championships do you think this team can do it they had the opportunity to have strong seniors return that they were supposed to graduate in 2020. However, with the pandemic, they were allowed to come back to compete this season. So I'm not sure. However, they will be getting back those other foreign players. 
So they're going to be strong. And because like I said, it's about the legacy that carries over. So they're losing a lot. But at the same time, though, they're going to gain back a lot of muscle. And they have some talented freshmen that were in this year. And so with their experience, they should be strong. And they're for sure in the top three, I would say. Because I know other programs are getting their top players back as well. But So my prediction is for sure top three, if not in the final game again. And the head coach, Marco Pintaric, named the MPSF and National Coach of the Year, his first win in both of those categories in his second year as the head coach after taking over when Casey Moon had been the interim in 2019. And utility Maud Megans named the MPSF and National Player of the Year, her first win for both. Driver Denise Mamalito and goalie Holly Parker joined Megan's as first-team All-Americans. Utility Bailey Weber earned a second-team All-American nod. And driver Kelsey McIntosh was third-team All-American. And Bernie, you were a student athlete at the same time as Marco Pintaric when he was on the men's water polo team for SE back in 97 and 98, winning the national title for SE, the first one for the program in 1998. What do you remember about him from back in the day? That he was pretty goofy. He liked to laugh a lot. But at the same time, though, when it came to water polo, he was very serious and very focused. And he really took advantage of the opportunities that Yovan provided for him. And after he graduated, he became a graduate assistant. And I don't know if coaching was his long-term goal, but... He sure has stepped into it really well. So I'm really proud of him and really proud of his accomplishments because he he's probably the hardest worker that I know in terms of always discovering new ways to be able to teach, new ways to be able to provide content back to his athletes, willing just to sit around and chit-chat about different drills. Do you think this would work? What do you see going this direction? He's a lot of fun to be around. Is it possible to overstate how good a job he's done in these two seasons after taking over in less than ideal circumstances? It's phenomenal. And he really stepped into that role and was able to show what it means to have legacy and what it means when you have a foundation, a strong foundation that anyone could step in as long as they have that same foundation, that same basic fundamentals. And so he was able to step right in to where Jovan left off and be able to bring that team together and put the X's and O's and make sure everyone understands their role. Because that's a lot of times when, when you have solid players or players that are used to being the superstars in high school, or maybe there is a superstar one year, but then someone else comes in. It's about finding that balance of egos. And he obviously showed that he had everyone bought in on the idea of working together to build each other's strengths. So I commend him for the work he's done and to just continue moving forward with the SC legacy. And for the star player, Maud Megans, she sat out that 2020 season to help the Dutch national team qualify for the Olympics. But unlike Hosschild, Osnar, and Kearns, she chose to come back for this season and is probably in line to win the Catino Award. She's got to be a favorite for that. So it's similar kind of like to what you did. And obviously everyone's got to make their individual choices. But do you think this is going to help her, the fact that she did come back to play instead of just training with her national team in the Netherlands? 
I really believe because they're limited on the amount of playing that they were able to do with the national teams. And so here I agree that she made the right decision of coming and not only just high level training, but she was able to play in high level games, which will give her an advantage going back with her national team. Finally, your thoughts on where the program is now compared to where you were kind of in the infancy of the program. Oh, they're night and day different. But at the same time, the same fundamental facts are there, I mean, of where hard work, determination, obviously they take care of each other away from the pool too. And so it might be night and day difference in terms of the program, but with the underlines of what was there before, it still remains. It's all about unity, being together, coming together as a team. You are listening to the Everything USC podcast. I am Nara Wang. My guest today is the one-time Katino Award winner for USC as a goalie in 1999, Bernice Orwig O'Connor. And if you enjoy listening to this show, you can subscribe, download, and rate it wherever you get your favorite podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and others. Or go right to the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcast. Not just this show, but so many other shows you can find there. And if you want to connect with me, I am on Twitter. Find and follow me at Narawang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Bernie, if there's any fans who want to reach out to you for any social media, let them know where they can find you. I can be found at Orwig underscore O'Connor, and that's with an O-R for the O'Connor. Hey, it's Mike Am of the NFL Network. You're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nora Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. Now with the Olympics coming up in Tokyo that were delayed a year by the coronavirus pandemic, I'd like to talk to you about not just your experience, but also the fact that there are four Trojans on this year's Olympic team attackers Kaylee Gilchrist, Stefania Haralabides, and Paige Hosschild are on the team along with goalie Amanda Longan. It'll be the second trip for Gilchrist, the first for the three others, and that would be the most Trojans on the U.S. Olympic team since five made it to Beijing in 2008. The U.S. team is the dominant team in the world. They've won gold at the last two Olympics and medaled at every Olympics in women's water polo, the only country to achieve either of those feats. They've won the last three world championships. They had a record 69-game win streak snapped with a 10-9 loss to Australia in January of 20 after they had not lost since April of 2018, if you can believe that. They just won the 2021 FINA World League Superfinal by a combined score of 105-42 to over six games. The captain of the team, Maggie Steffens, and defender Melissa Seidemann are going for a three-peat. Both of them Pac-12 fans might be familiar with as they played at Stanford. The head coach is Adam Krikorian, a former UCLA player and coach who has turned this program into an absolute beast. Is this year's squad the best team ever assembled in women's water polo, like some people are saying? It might be. The talent that these women have and the way that they're able to play for each other, it is fun to watch. I know I mentioned early about ball movement. They've just put on clinics during 
championship games where sometimes championship games aren't the best looking games. And they just put on a clinic about how to move the ball, how to connect with each other. It's fun to watch. What are you looking forward to seeing most from this team in Tokyo? I really am excited to watch them defensively. I mean, with both Ashley and Amanda in the goal, they're strong. They're strong goalkeepers with strong communication skills. And so they put their defense where they need to be. So when the shots come at them, they make it look easy to block. And then they have that great outlook on the counterattack. So the counterattack is the other area. It's just fast. If people like fast breaks in basketball, they will love fast breaks in water polo. I mean, the counterattack is very similar to a basketball counterattack. So it'll be fun to watch. And then on their power play offense, their six on five passing patterns, and the ball never hits the water. And so it's just mesmerizing. They don't try to do anything fancy or tricky. They just move the ball and score the ball. So how does the new rule that makes one of the 13 players on the roster inactive for a match affect strategy? If anything, it allows for a player maybe to get a little more rest. Because I know back in 2000, it was a much different format. We played every day. And so as goalies, Nicole Payne and I, we switched off days to be able to give our legs rest. Now with the ability to rotate a player, and if you have someone that needs to take extra time for a shoulder or for an elbow or whatever might ha- be happening, it gives you that flexibility now. So it can actually be used to, to an advantage. And who do you think is going to be the toughest competition for Team USA? The Netherlands are always strong, and they recently played Russia. However, just because they, they beat Russia handily right in this recently doesn't mean they're going to be push up. They're always the strong team as well. And then Australia, I would say Australia is probably one of our strongest rivalries. And that is the team that they lost to most recently. So it'll be interesting to see how that Australia-USA matchup happens. And because the strength of this team, the fact that it is the world dominant powerhouse in women's water polo, would you consider it gold medal or bust for Team USA? No, because especially with eight returners, they know that at the Olympics, anything can happen. And it is an honor and a privilege to attend the Olympics and even more so to even just be on the podium. And so to say it's gold medal or bust, I'm almost setting them up for failure. And so, of course, they're striving for that. At the same time, though, they understand the necessity of approaching each game as an individual game and making sure that they do what they need to do as play as a team. And if they have a loss during the Olympics, They'll turn it around and come back the very next day. And the gold medal game is always the hardest as well. And in 2000, we lost in that gold medal game. And no one really ever talks about the fact that you have to go and look happy up on the podium, but yet you just lost the biggest game of your life. And so I think having returners, granted they're gold medal returners, but they still understand that it could go either way. And so to make sure that you are focused and attentive to each moment and enjoy each moment is really what the Olympics is about. Let's talk about that 2000 Olympics in Sydney. You were there winning a silver medal as the only Trojan represented on that national team. You made the national team in 1998, but you chose, like you said, to come back for your final season in 1999 at 
SE instead of training with Team USA. What made you decide to make that decision to come back? Because like you mentioned, Jovan had said that it would be okay for you to redshirt if you wanted. And how difficult was the decision? It was hard. However, with talking to Jovan, talking to Guy Baker, the national team coach, and talking with my family, we all decided that getting my degree at that point was going to be most important. I wasn't a shoe-in for making the roster for our first opportunity to qualify for the Olympics. We still had a full year of training before the Olympics were going to come. So I had time after that 99 season to rejoin the national team. Because also I, at that time, I didn't have an ACL in my right leg. I tore it in high school. And so I was having a lot of issues and needed a little more attention to it, which the athletic trainers were able to provide while at USC. And so it really came down to getting my degree and being able to play my senior year. Did you feel secure that making that choice didn't put your position on the national team in any kind of jeopardy? It was a risk just because Guy Baker was the UCLA coach. So it was in the back of my head. I'm like, he'll never take a Trojan as his starting goalkeeper. So I kind of already had, was like, ah, kind of just here as a token Trojan player anyways. So there was always, I always had that doubt in my head, but I figured if I have my degree and then I'm invited back to train again, all I could do is my best. And I had family and friends and coaches and teammates that all supported me in that. And thankfully it, it all paid off. And after you returned to the national team, there was still that need, like you said, to actually qualify for those 2000 Olympics. How much pressure did you and the team feel in Italy at the qualification tournament? Yeah, so 99, we had our first opportunity to qualify, and we had basically just had to beat Canada in our final game, or place higher than Canada, and we lost. And so that put us in a do-or-die situation for end of April in Palermo, Sicily, in Italy, that we had to be top two. And so we really focused on making sure that we weren't getting ahead of ourselves. And that's when the foundation was being laid about, is all about the circle. And so before every game, the team would always come together. We would hold hands and we would pass the energy and confidence through each other. And it was all about the circle. And we would come together before major tournaments. It didn't matter if it was a tournament in Karishi, Russia, a tournament in Athens, Greece, or at the Olympics. We always came together, held each other's hands, and we knew we had each other's back, regardless of what happened. And playing in Italy wasn't going to be easy. I mean, the Italians, they're, they're a rough crowd. And then Hungary was one of the top programs as well. And so it was looking as if it was going to be a Hungary-Italy qualifier. But thankfully, we matched up with Hungary in the semifinals. And we ended up winning, I believe the final score was 6-5. to five. And then Russia beat Italy in Italy, which was a huge upset. So that's how we qualified for the Olympics. And then even when we got to the Olympics, it wasn't going to be an easy road. I mean, people had us listed as fifth place. At the highest we would get would be fifth. And at that time, there was only six teams in the Olympics. So we were always considered the underdogs. And then even after qualifying, you had a bit of bad luck. You suffered a broken arm. And it probably helped that the Olympics were a little later, being in the Southern Hemisphere. It started in mid-September instead of maybe July like it's going to be this year and so you were able to heal up in time for the Olympics but were you afraid that that injury could maybe possibly keep you out of the games oh yeah I so 
the way I broke my arm, I was actually at Indianapolis with USC because I was a goalkeeper consultant with them. So I traveled with them to NC2As after our, one of our early round games. I was in the locker room changing to do a, a light workout and I slipped and fell in the locker room and I landed on a way on my arm. And then someone in the background was like, oh, bye bye Olympics. And I immediately jumped up. I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And I knew right away something wasn't fine, but I ignored it. I'm like, nope, everything's going to be good. So I went two weeks without going to, to the doctor before finding out that my arm was, in fact, I had a hairline fracture in my radial head. And I then had to sit out for an additional four weeks. I was able to train and do leg work and everything like that, but I had four weeks of no contact, no play. So I was really nervous about my chances of making that Olympic team. So you end up being okay. You're on the team. You're at the games. But like you mentioned, you feel like maybe you're just a token Trojan. Do you think that maybe that, oh, my God, that's going to cost me the starting goalie job for the team? Yeah. Thankfully, I had a great coach, Chris Duplante. He was the goalkeeper coach. And he gave this great analogy about you can feel like you're swirling around the drain. And all it takes is one moment for you to reach out and grab that branch to hold on to. And I had to find my branch, which ended up being my teammates. And so my teammates were so supportive of me and making sure that I was able to come after recovery and going through physical therapy, coming back and starting to play. Once I started regaining confidence and they were, they were there for me and they're the reason why I end up being the starting goalkeepers because they had complete trust and faith in what I was able to do. And they saw I was working hard to get back to my level of play. And then, of course, there's a little bit of the adrenaline, right? You're at the Olympics. You're going to do whatever it takes to play. And it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And at those Olympics, during the preliminary round, you and Nicole Payne, like you mentioned, alternated games. You played the first and third matches, defeating the Netherlands 6-4 and Russia 7-5. Oh, and just a side note, by the way, the star player for USC this year, Maud Megans. Her mother, Patricia, was on that Netherlands team. And by the way, I looked it up. You didn't allow a goal to her. So you got a clean sheet against Miles' mom. All right. Ooh, and yeah. then Nicole, she played the second and fourth matches, 8 uh, 8 tie with Canada, and then losing 7 6 to Australia. You split time in the final prelim, a 9 6 win against Kazakhstan. So was that always the plan to split up the preliminary round like that? Yeah, and I believe the coaches also wanted to see who was rising to the challenge. So who was gaining confidence? Who was the team reacting best to? So it also allowed them to see who should be playing in that semifinal and final game. And Nicole, obviously, she was playing great, but I was able to, I don't know, I just, I guess I had just something that the coaches saw where I was working and doing things. And gave me that opportunity to play in that semifinal game against the Netherlands again, who was the most winningest program in the history of women's war polo at that time. They had won the most recent world championships. They were considered the gold medal favorites going into the Olympic games. And for us to upset them in our first game of the tournament, people thought it was a fluke. And that semifinal was going to be just a blowout. But thankfully we had confidence in what we were doing and just took each game, each moment, and came out with a win in that semifinal. 
Yeah, and you were down 5-4 at halftime of that semifinal and then shut them out in the second half, came back with two goals against a team that, like you said, were probably the favorites to win it all. And so how different was that semifinal compared to that first prelim match of the tournament in terms of how you were feeling and just maybe the excitement around everything because you're in the medal round now? Yeah, I don't remember the first round game. And even of the semifinal, what I do remember is at halftime going underwater, adjusting my cap just before the the whistle blew for the third quarter start. And then in my head, I'm just like, no more. They're done. And it became that mindset for me. And then in the fourth quarter, we scored what ended up being the winning goal. I believe it was Heather Moody scored it. And then she, two possessions later, she ended up getting her nose busted. One of the Netherlands players elbowed her to the face and busted her nose. And so I'm like, oh, okay. She worked so hard for that goal. There's no way I'm going to let another goal in. And we even came down. I think there was about a minute and a half left in the game. We're up 6-5. We ended up having a bad turnover on offense. And their two-meter player wasn't slowing down to play defense. And so they ended up having a two-on-one opportunity. And thankfully, the girl that shot the ball shot right to my strength. And so I was able to block it, and we were able to just kill the clock after that. It was all about the mindset. I'm like, I had it in my mind, there's no more. We're going to do this. We're doing this for each other. And we move forward. So then you have to face the host country, Australia, for gold. What was the atmosphere for that like in the Sydney Olympic Aquatic Center? So all of our prelim games and semifinal games were played in a different location. And then for the gold medal game, we moved to the main aquatic center. Night and day difference. I mean, the prelim pool is like a little splash pool compared to this venue. There was, I think, 17,000 spectators, which was the most ever in the history of water polo spectators, men's or women's. And it sounded like all of them were Australian and there's maybe 300 U.S. supporters and they have so much love for country and so much love for their sports that it was deafening. I mean, I still can feel the vibrations in my soul of the way that they were doing their chants and their singing and the cheers that they would have. It was just an experience that you, every athlete wants to have. Obviously, it'd be better for it to be your home team or your home country. But at the same time, though, it's a fun atmosphere to play a game in. And what else do you remember from that gold medal match? I remember that in the third quarter, for some reason, the ball had to be pulled out. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but all of a sudden, the entire stand started singing uh, Waltzing Matilda, which is one of their national folk songs. And it gave me chills that this, the entire stands were singing to their country. And I didn't think of it as that way. I'm like, they're singing to me. Like, they're doing this for me as well. And just because they have such love of sport. And it's just a beautiful, I just took that moment to look up to the stands and just really take it in. And just awe-inspiring. And then I also remember that at some point, you would start to hear a you. And then it would get drowned out by an Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. <laughs> so the USA fans were trying to cheer, but they just were outnumbered. 
And of course, that game comes down to the final seconds. It's tied at 3-3, and a goal gets in with just a few seconds left in the game. And now, listen, everyone knows, you lose as a team, and you win as a team. But does it hurt more when you're the goalie and you give up a goal late in the game, especially when it's for the gold medal? I took it hard because it went off my hand and then into the goal. And we had just scored right before that to make it 3-3. And then there was confusion on the location of where the ball was supposed to be put live. And then all of a sudden they're shooting and it went off my hand into the goal. Our coach was protesting that it didn't, wasn't supposed to be allowed. The referees were allowing it. And so we had, I think, 1.3 seconds left on the clock when they went up 4-3. to three. And it, it devastated me. I mean, Sports Illustrated had a photo of that final goal going in even in their magazine after the Olympics were over. And so now it's like even seared into my brain of the shot I missed. And it was hard to recover from that i remember watching it and obviously we're all rooting for you just because we're trojans and because we know you and we were so excited that you were the one who got chosen to be in the semifinal and the final as the starter for the national team and we're so proud of you and just to see that happen i do remember the controversy around it and just knowing that there's no way they're overturning that in australia yeah it's just there's no way it's going to happen in front of, like you said, that amount of people cheering for that home team. So it had to be rough. But overall, how would you sum up your experience as an Olympian? Oh, amazing. I mean, of course, there's always, like I said before, the journey that it takes to get there. And even the stories I'm telling, I barely can remember the games themselves, but I remember things that happened that were emotional and that were meaningful but not necessarily part of the game and so it's that whole package of the journey to get to the olympics and then while being at the olympics because you set yourself up as it's just another tournament and because that's how you're going to manage your nerves you you can't overthink it and then it's after the fact that you're like whoa i was on the world stage and i was able to be a part of something special and that's what but thankfully was able to help me kind of come to terms with what happened was that, yeah, it was a, a team effort and I might miss that last shot, but at the same time though, we played hard. We did everything as a team and we even stayed together after the fact as a team. And that's what carries you through. And that's what I remember the most about being an Olympian is being there with my teammates. So before I let you go, Bernie, You've remained active in water polo as a coach across many levels after your playing days finished up. Is that something you always planned to pursue when you ended your playing career? I enjoyed coaching. I started coaching right out of high school. I was uh, coaching a JV team in Orange County, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the young athletes' aha moments like when they were finally able to catch the ball for the first time or when they figured out how to turn someone. And that little sparkle in the eye of that aha moment, of like, oh, I get it, because they struggle and they work so hard because it's not a natural sport to learn. And so I kind of fell in love with that aha moment. So I have, I've coached everything from between 10 and unders all the way to Olympic level because I was on the 2008 coaching staff for Beijing. 
which was very special because that ended up bringing my whole Olympic experience together. Because when I was in, in 2000 as an athlete, I did not walk in opening ceremonies because we played the next day. And when you go through opening ceremonies, you're standing for a good four to five hours. And I knew I was starting. And so I needed my legs fresh. So I didn't walk. Well, in 2008, I was a team leader and goalkeeper coach. And as a team leader, I had to walk in opening ceremonies. And I'm like, oh, if I have to, I guess I'll do this. <laughs> and so to get that experience of walking through the tunnel and coming out onto the field to the entire world cheering you on just brought the whole Olympic experience for me full circle. And now that you and the family have for some reason, moved out of California to Texas of all places. Will you be continuing your coaching career out there? And should we expect to start seeing some more high-level water polo recruits out of the Lone Star State? Possibly. We'll see. We'll see. Right now, I'm looking to do a little different direction. I have some feelers out there for some sports marketing firms. Because with my kids, being in school all day and coaching is usually an after-school evening activity. I want to be able to see my kids. And they're actually fun to hang out with. So I'm going to find a day job for a little while. And then I'm sure I'll be back on the pool deck at some point, but it might take a little hiatus for a few months or so. Well, it's been a joy getting to catch up with you today, Bernie. Is there any final words you'd like to get out there for the Trojan fans? Just remember to go out there to fight on, support your local Trojan team, your individual athletes, support them. This has been a rough year for a lot of athletes in a lot of different ways. But at the same time, a lot of athletes have been able to find a new type of success. And we're seeing that with the national championships we were able to win this past year. And it's just going to keep getting better. And so remember to fight on, have fun, and it's always good to be a Trojan. So for my guest, USC women's water polo legend, Bernice Orwig O'Connor, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode 32 of the Everything USC podcast presented by Bet Online on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and much, much more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And as I end every show. Please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.